Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, we got some good medical news. A woman in New York City appears to have been cured of HIV. The woman also had a form of leukemia, which made her a candidate for a transplant of stem cells that carry a rare genetic mutation that blocks HIV. She received those stem cells in the form of umbilical cord blood from a newborn. While scientists are encouraged by this development, treating HIV with transplants is still risky and costly. For more on all this, we'll speak to Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. She didn't want to be identified other than someone who is middle-aged and of mixed race. So she she had leukemia, acute myeloid leukemia, which is a, a cancer of the blood-forming cell, of blood-forming cells. And she needed treatment for that leukemia. She also was living with HIV. And so a few years ago, her doctors told her she needed a stem cell transplant for the cancer, but offered her the option of getting a new type of transplant, which might possibly, in addition to curing the leukemia, might cure her HIV. And that's exactly what happened. What she received was a stem cell transplant using, instead of just bone marrow, which other patients who have been cured were given. She was given umbilical cord uh, cells, a transplant of um, stem cells from umbilical cord blood, which don't require an exact match with the donor. But with these cells had a genetic mutation, which basically blocks uh, HIV from, from entering cells. And so the transplant was successful. You know, these cells kind of took over her immune system. And so she is now free of HIV and has been free, you know, since the transplant. And she went off of um, HIV drugs more than 15 months ago and has had no signs of the virus. Yeah, Yeah. all very good news. And and so, okay, so she got to basically two stem cell transplants, one from a relative that would be to uh, help fight the, the leukemia. And the other one, as you mentioned, the umbilical cord blood from a newborn who she wasn't related to. And the reason why it's so great is because that blood, that umbilical cord blood, the stem cells from there, don't need to be a a perfect genetic match. It's a little broader in range. So that's why this is uh, uh, such good news here. So the reason this this transplant is made up of two different types of cells. The, The most important one is the umbilical cord cells. Because they don't need as direct a match, she was also given some stem cells from a relative to help the transplant take hold faster. So that's why there were two instead of one. But the most important one is that that it was these right. cord blood cells and that they did contain, like transplants given to other patients previously, they did contain um, cells with this genetic mutation. Yeah, and so we've seen this happen before to great news as well, but transplants still overall little risky and costly, and they're really only an option for people that uh, need the treatment for other diseases, such as the cancer, like what we we're talking about. So it's not really available to everybody just yet. Uh, so tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, exactly. This isn't something that you could just start giving to HIV patients um, in the U.S. or around the world. It's dangerous. It's expensive. I mean, it's really 
it's something that this woman and other patients were being given for leukemia or lymphoma. But the goal here is to, uh, you know, the reason this is interesting to scientists is that, or who are pursuing a cure is first, any patient who's cured of HIV is kind of inspiring to the field, right? It shows this can be done. The second thing is that with this woman's case and with the others before, there's there are clues that can be mined by researchers who are working on developing gene therapies that would be able to, without a transplant, confer this, this same mutation, it's called the CCR5 mutation, to HIV patients. I mean, what if you could develop something like a vaccine, you know, or, or an injection that would, you know, deliver into your body a gene therapy, essentially instructions to create this mutation in your body. And this is something that's still, it's not you know, ready yet. It's something that is in development and will take years. But her case is very interesting in that it was a successful transplant. It took hold right away. And this mutation is normally found in a subset of Caucasians. She is of mixed race. Because she got the cord blood, it didn't require that exact close match. So her success shows that first, transplants can be given to a broader number of people. But secondly, there are lessons to be learned about this mutation that may help in development of gene therapies that could be applicable for a much broader range of people, people who don't have cancer and don't need a transplant. And when we talk about this, and you know, we the, the word cure is thrown around. What's the threshold for that definition? Because there's a lot of people that have gone in remission for a long time, years, and obviously they can uh, still be on those antiviral drugs and all that. Uh, so let's say the doctors are saying they're hopeful that this is she has been cured. You know, what's that threshold? What are, what are we looking at? Well, it's a really good question. You know, I asked a researcher this yesterday. And um, this person responded, I think cure is a matter of definition. When are you cured from cancer? Right. You know, a similar thing. Obviously, one threshold for cancer is five years. If you're in remission, five years, you're cured. And some people are talking about that for HIV as well. You know, in the field, doctors who treat these patients really shy from the, the term cure. They don't always want to say cure. That's people like us saying they're cured. The term they use more generally is remission or long-term remission, but some are saying five years. So the first patient to be cured, um, Timothy Ray Brown, more than a decade and a half, or about a decade and a half ago, he was considered cured. He didn't have a resurgence of HIV. He did unfortunately die in 2020 of a relapse of his um, cancer, but he had remained HIV-free and um, two other patients are also in remission after their transplants. Betsy McKay, senior writer at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Finally for this week, a woman in San Antonio named Jane became one of the first to undergo surgery for a treatment of Alzheimer's called deep brain stimulation. This is not a treatment to reverse the disease. Rather, it's aimed at helping people maintain their memories and independence. The surgery involves implanting electrodes in the brain to keep the memory areas stimulated. The process uses a very sophisticated robotic system to make the precise movements needed while the patient is awake. For more on how it all works, we'll speak to Dr. Alexander Papanastasio, Associate Professor of Neurosurgery at UT Health San Diego, who is also involved in the surgery. First point, of course, is that you know there are uh, medical treatments for Alzheimer's, but, but they don't uh, delay uh, progression and help with some of the symptoms. And so 
you know, one of the holy grails in the field of medicine is to try and find a, a better treatment for Alzheimer's disease. And that's what we're, we're after. And um, it turned out that, you know, this was found a little bit serendipitously when Dr. Lozano uh, in Toronto was looking for a target for treating obesity with deep brain stimulation. He uh, was at a target that was right next to the fornix and people that he implanted for that pilot trial said their thinking seemed a little bit clearer and their memory seemed a little bit better. And he had an aha moment where he said, oh, I wonder if we could use this for uh, memory disorders. And then they began trying to target the fornix in particular to see if it could help in patients with Alzheimer's, which is a memory disorder, of course, among other deficits that go along with Alzheimer's. So uh, that was sort of the genesis of the uh, study. And then they did a, a pilot study uh, with, I believe, about six people. And from there, they went to the first advanced trial called Advance 1. And the purpose of Advance 1 was to look at safety. So it's always the first step in any medical trial for a device trial. Uh, you know, was it possible to target the structure in a safe way? It turns out that the technique that we're using, deep brain stimulation, is a, a very common technique for other disorders. It's the standard of care for Parkinson's disease, as well as essential tremor. It's also a uh, well-known and well-used technique uh, for epilepsy that doesn't respond to medicines and can't be cured by taking out a part of the brain. Deep brain stimulation of the thalamus is helpful for epilepsy as well. And so among neurosurgeons, there's a subspecialty called stereotactic and functional neurosurgery. And we get, uh, we're the sort of neurosurgeons who get used to using special techniques to minimally invasively place electrodes or other catheters or probes uh, in the brain to treat uh, disorders uh, like what we just described mm -hmm. above. So this yeah. area of the brain Go that ahead. you described, the fornix, right, that's uh, responsible for some memory function there. And the whole idea yeah. is basically providing some stimulation there just to help people with Alzheimer's just keep that part of the brain functioning, right? As, as I mentioned earlier, it's not about reversing the progression of the disease. It's just kind of to help keep that part of the brain stimulated. That's exactly right. And so the first surgery that you guys performed, you were, you helped, you were part of this whole team. It was a woman from San Antonio in her seventies. She goes by the name of Jane. Tell me a little bit about her and, and her condition and why she was a good candidate for this. Well, the, the first off is that, you know, for early Alzheimer's, you know, she had noticed problems with her memory, which is why she originally went to her doctor to get a diagnosis and see if she had an issue. But if you were to meet her, you know, she's a very charming person and you wouldn't be able to tell just talking to her. You know, she can certainly, you know, remember, you know, most things about her life and in normal conversation, you wouldn't notice anything. But part of the team includes a neuropsychologist and they do a formal assessment of somebody's memory uh, using various uh, scales and uh, tests that have been developed. And uh, then they're able to detect you know, what type of uh, memory problem she has. Also, prior to entering the trial, a person first has to be on a stable dose of one of the medicines for Alzheimer's disease. Those are the acetylcholine uh, inhibitors and have the mild Alzheimer's. And then that's a reason to uh, move forward. As part of the study, they also have a lumbar puncture uh, where we look at uh, cerebrospinal fluid to see if it has typical markers of Alzheimer's in it as well. So she was a good candidate for this. And, and this has to be done with people with mild Alzheimer's. I mean, I guess if the progression has gone too far, you can't really slow it down enough, right? That's our understanding at this time. We wanted to start with people who had mild Alzheimer's to try and make their memory better. The further the disease progresses, the harder it is to treat. And so in a trial like this, where we're trying to establish this as a new treatment, we thought that you know the best target was early Alzheimer's, where you'd be more likely to be able to have an impact with a treatment like this, especially one that 
you know, as far as we know, is not expected to uh, delay progression or cure it. It's just expected to help with memory and minimize symptoms. Tell me a little bit more about the actual procedure, because as I mentioned, you were involved in this. You guys use a state-of-the-art robotic system. You know, working in the brain is obviously very, very delicate work. And you use this robot to make the, the precision implantation of the device in the brain. Yeah, that's right. So the, the technique that we're using is uh, it's called stereotaxy. And uh, the general principle of it is that, of course, we can get a brain MRI to see the structures in the brain that we would like to target, uh, in this particular case, the fornix. And then what we do is we apply what's called a stereotactic frame, and we fit that to the patient. And what that means uh, in lay terms, as you can imagine, there are four pins that go through the skin and fix the frame to the bone so that there's a rigid transformation between the patient in the patient's head and this frame. And then, then what you can do is you can do an intraoperative image with a localizer on the frame, and then you can know where that frame is in 3D space. And once you've done that image to know where your frame is and the frame is fixed to the person's head, well, then, of course, you can know where things are in 3D space uh, underneath the skin, deep within someone's uh, brain. Because the whole point of this is that we need to get an electrode far into the brain, and we want to do that as minimally invasively right. as possible. So we're not actually going to see where the electrode goes. We're just going to know where it goes based on this system. And what the robot adds to that is that the robot is a robotic arm where uh, this is the Renishaw Neuromate robot, and it has very high accuracy of less than 0.5 millimeters of error. So it's a very small error. Wow. And uh, what it is, is it's a robotic arm that we can push a button and the robotic arm goes into just the right position to deliver the electrode to the right spot with uh, minimal error. And so that's the yeah. use of the robot uh, for the uh, procedure. And you mentioned how it's minimally invasive, right? Yeah, I think... Uh from my understanding, depending on, you know, the hairline of the subject and all, uh, you might not even see anything, maybe a small bump or something like that. So uh, really don't see too much uh, of the after effects. Yeah, that's right. So there's a, there's a small incision, and then we make a dime-sized opening uh, in the bone, which is what we put the uh, electrode through. And in that opening, we have a little plastic fixture that secures the electrode in place so that it will be at the right depth. And that fixture has a little cap to it. And so that's the teeny little bump. So for a person who's bald like myself, you might see the small bump or you might see a healed incision. But for somebody who's got a full head of hair, uh, well, of course, it's behind the hairline and you wouldn't notice it at all unless uh, right. unless you were looking for it and knew it was there. <laughs> okay. So we've got this device implanted into Jane. How is she doing now? And what's the rest of the study looking like? I mean, obviously, you know, we're going to be uh, pulsing uh, electricity through there and, and, you know, stimulating the brain. Uh, what are we looking for throughout the duration of the study? Well, actually, before we go on to that, before we leave the procedure, one of the things that's interesting and unique about the procedure is that it's done awake, and we also look for responses during the surgery. You know, it sounds really unique when you first hear about it, the idea of doing awake brain surgery, but it turns out to be a very routine thing that's been done since the 1920s and 1930s routinely. And so the first point that most people might be familiar with is that the brain doesn't have sensation. And so it's not going to hurt as you put an electrode through the brain. The parts that can hurt are the scalp and the covering of the brain. And the scalp can be anesthetized with local anesthetic. So the first thing we do is we sedate somebody and apply local anesthetic all around the scalp and, and to where the incision is going to be. And then we let the sedation wear off. And then people are awake, usually with you know, minimal or no pain. Um, and then, you know, we go through the procedure of, you know, making the small incision and opening the hole. You know, the one thing is that when we use the drill, it can be a little bit like going to a dentist where the, 
vibration of the drill, you can hear it because it vibrates through your bone near the uh, near the uh, bones of the ear, of course, right. as well. So it sounds kind of loud, but it doesn't hurt. And then once we place the electrode, we're looking for confirmation that we're in the right place. So we have this stereotactic system with a robotic arm, but we also want to confirm through other ways that we got to the right place. And the first thing is that when we start to stimulate through the electrode, sometimes people have memories or vague memories. And that was true for Jane. She did have some vague memories when we turned the stimulator on. And that helped us know that we were near the fornix because there are very few places in the brain where you would expect a response like that. The other thing is that the fornix is right next to an area called the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is involved in controlling heart rate and blood pressure. So when we turn the stimulator on, if we're in the right place, we expect to see the heart rate uh, go up a little bit and the blood pressure, uh, we expect to see that go up a little bit too. And so we saw both those things, you know, in her case that helped us know we were in the right place. And then once we feel confident that we've got to the right place, then we take another image with something called an O-arm. It's like an intraoperative CT scanner. And then we can see where the electrode is and confirm that it went where we wanted it to go. So then, then, of course, after that, then we, uh, and can, we can close up. And one of the yeah. things that's nice about being able to do this awake is certainly the idea of being able to have confirmation that you got to the right place. Right. It's also nice to be able to avoid general anesthesia, which makes the recovery easier. And sometimes people with dementia can feel like their memory got a little bit worse uh, after uh, general anesthesia. It's certainly safe to do general anesthesia. It has to be done all the time for various procedures, but the less we can do it, the better. And so that's sort of the the wrap-up of how it is uh, awake. But it's yeah. also very similar to other awake procedures we do. For example, mapping where someone's language is to take out a brain tumor or uh, in movement disorder surgery, uh, testing where a lead is to treat Parkinson's disease or essential tremor. Uh, and a lot of those procedures can also be done asleep, but there's certainly a possibility of doing them awake as well. And so, and as I mentioned, just to, to wrap it all up, you know, the ongoing study, what are we looking for as far as Jane's progression oh, yeah. and, and all that? So we all want to know as soon as possible, is it going to work? And the answer is we're not going to know because the endpoint for the study is called the Integrated Alzheimer's Disease Rating Scale. It's another one of those tools that the psychologists use. That's our primary endpoint for the study. And the time that we're going to be looking at is one year after the implant and stimulator has been on. And of course, the progression of Alzheimer's is slow. And so over one year, there should be enough progression that we can tell a difference between patients where the stimulator's on and hopefully has slowed it down versus patients where it hasn't been slowed down. But ideally, the patient and we ourselves will not know if it's on or not. Of course, it's a double-blinded study, so you know I won't know if the thing's on or not, and she won't be able to tell. And uh, the progression of the disorder is slow enough. So I think the big picture here is that we won't know for about a year. And uh, once there's enough people, uh, there's going to be 90 patients in the first part of the study and 210 total. Um, once all 210 have gotten to a year, then that's when we unblind it and tell people, hey, you were on or you were off. Um, after a year, uh, everybody can be turned on. Uh, so it won't be that people had a procedure and won't have any uh, uh, stimulation at all. Yeah, anything to uh, show. So <laughs> we'll kind of have to wait until then to find out. Dr. Alexander Papanastasio, Associate Professor of Neurosurgery at the University of Texas. Health Science Center at San Antonio. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.